Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today on Below the Line, we're talking about what it's like to be a child actor on set. And my guest is former child actor David Dorfman, whose credits include Panic with Bill Macy, The Ring with Naomi Watts, and Drillbit Taylor with Owen Wilson. David, welcome to Below the Line. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. And obviously, this goes without saying, given the context, but I am just speaking on behalf of myself tonight and not anyone else or the U.S. government or whatnot. Understood, David. Well, you know, we're going to go more to that, and I'm glad we could get you here today. I want to start off our conversation reminiscing on how I ran into you here in D.C. Now, for regular listeners may recall, I'm based in D.C., and my wife works for the federal government. She works with international trade. And back in 2018, the Embassy of Singapore invited her to a reception and screening for Crazy Rich Asians. And that's where I ran into you. What a crazy story that was indeed. So many years we've run into each other, of all places, at a movie screening. How fitting, right? <laughs> I think at the time, uh, this was just before I launched the podcast. And so I had been planning that first season. I had some episodes in the can. And I'm sure that I just brought up that I was doing this podcast. And was I don't know, I was probably handing out cards and stuff at the time. And that's when you shared with me a little bit of your background. Yeah, no, it was total coincidence. It truly is a small world. I mean, at the time, I was working uh, actually chief counsel for the Asia subcommittee or the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And, well, we ran into each other. Uh, I was there in my official capacity. She was there in hers. And it truly is a small world. Well, what really makes it a small world is it turns out we had worked together back in Hollywood. I was a production assistant on Panic with Bill Macy, the movie that you were on as well. And so when you were a child, and I didn't recognize you, I won't say at the time, or knew when we started talking, but it turns out again that we had that overlap back on our resumes. We did indeed. A great movie, by the way. Highly recommend everyone check it out. It was one of those amazing indie pictures that just had such a great storyline, such compelling characters and love that movie to this day. Yeah. Well, and coincidentally, folks, yes, go watch the movie. And then way back in season one of the podcast, where I actually did an episode with some of the crew from that one as well. But David, again, to bring it back to child actors, give us a little context and talk about your work in Hollywood. You know, we know each other from Panic, uh, which was an amazing film, but not particularly prominent. I think you mentioned early up some of the things I was better known for were The Ring, Ring 2, Drill with Taylor, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Wrinkle in Time, a number of TV shows. Uh, and, you know, something people really don't appreciate. I mean, you certainly appreciate Skid, but outside of L.A. is just how many things you work on that don't end up going anywhere. Pilots, indie films, it's, you know, it, it is a brutal contest to get distribution. Uh, so, you know, it was it was basically my life growing up. Well, how did you get started in that? <laughs> well, I, I got started uh, when I was like three or something doing commercials, a lot of food commercials, actually. You know, people say food critic is a good job. I, I care to differ. You know, doing food commercials is probably an even better gig. <laughs> there are only so many flavors of Campbell's soup. But hey, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I got started doing commercials and that turned into pilots that turned into movies and, you know, off to the races from there. If I recall correctly, then Panic was near the beginning of your movie career or would you put that kind of in the middle? Like, talk to me about your arc as an actor in Hollywood. I was really young at the time. Uh, 
that was definitely on the earlier side of things. You know, I'd have to uh, review the timeline to remember exactly where that was at, but uh, I must have been six, seven. That was definitely one of the uh, earlier ones. No, I think that's about right. Now, in my role as a production assistant, you know, I was doing a lot of lockup away from set and um, I did uh, hide in the back of Bill Macy's car to tell him when to drive for a scene and things like that. So it's like it's not like you and I had a lot of direct interaction at that time, but it was an enjoyable set. and There was a lot going on there, I thought. No, it was it was definitely a great cast. You had Bill Macy, Neff Campbell, Tracy Ullman, Donald Sutherland, all stars. Henry Bromell was the director who uh, went on to Homeland. It was just all around an amazing, uh, amazing cast. But what was really, uh, you know, personally interesting about it is I actually had a lot of firsts on that production, being so young at the time. Spoiler alert, it's about a family of hitmen. So you have Donald Sutherland, who's the grandpa who turned his son, Bill Macy, into a hitman. And now I'm being groomed to be the next in a long line of very... uh, Capable hitman, if I may say so. <laughs> but it's a, a hot topic nowadays after Rust and the Alec Baldwin and Simple. That was the first time I kind of test fired a weapon. There's a scene where I, you know, fire a gun. It was also the first time I went skiing. You know, the film went to Sundance and uh, we went up to Park City and Deer Valley. So I got a lot of firsts out of that production. That's for sure. Now, I'm guessing a lot of people might have seen you for the first time, David, in the Ring movies, the American remake with Naomi Watts, and then there was a sequel, Ring Two. You know what I think people probably actually saw me first in? It was actually probably a movie called Bats a couple of years before that. Okay, tell me more about that one. It was uh, Ben Affleck, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Alex Lenz. So I think that was probably the first big picture that made my name, if you will. And so working on these sets with these major name actors, what kind of stories did you take away? What were your impressions as a child in that environment? I mean, look, it's a, it's a unique way to grow up. There's no two ways around it. There's good, there's bad, there's everything in between. But at the end of the day, it's a really unique world. And Hollywood, we got to define it broadly because, you know, one of the things that it allowed me to do is, you know, travel to so many places, Canada or Japan or, you know, you name it. But uh, it's an interesting way for a kid to grow up. And it actually, you know, you have a full-time job. At the end of the day, it's everyone listening and, you know, involved in the industry knows all too well. It's not all fun and games. It, It is work. And you need to take it seriously if you want to do a good job. Dave, you talk about that entire world. I want to dive a little deeper to that. As an actor, you're considered above the line, meaning your salary isn't mixed in with below the line expenses like crew and equipment. There is, however, this extensive ecosystem around minor performers that really straddles both sides of that line. And so let's talk about some of those roles. Yeah, absolutely. Beyond just actors themselves, we forget there's also background performers, right? If you're shooting a school scene or, you know, out on a play yard, you have a bunch of other kids who are also minors who are background performers and they're kids too. And sometimes they're adults, but, you know, sometimes they're kids as well. You have stand-ins, you have studio teachers, you know, there are laws and union rules about how many hours of education that need to happen on set every day. There are stunt performers, like literally child stunt performers for child actors. There truly is an ecosystem of folks who, you know, support, as you'd expect, child actors on set. And it really is, uh, you know, important we also think about them, not just the people we recognize, not just the people who get some fame, get some glory, but 
kids really working hard behind the scenes, below the line to make that movie magic happen. Now, as studio teachers, they're both providing education on set when it's required. And at least in California, they also are making sure the rules are enforced because there are very strict rules about what hours you can work, how many hours you can work, what the breaks are like for minors. Both the actors and background performers are under the same guidelines. Talk to me a little about your relationship with the studio teacher and how that really was for your interest on set. Well, it's a really important role. You know, as you mentioned they're not just tasked with making sure kids get educated and don't get behind with school or too behind, but also with making sure the various protections in place are enforced. And, you know, lately there's actually been some really crazy news articles about fake studio teachers. Have you heard about these? No, I have not. Say more. Pretty recently, and I forget if it was Deadline or Hollywood Reporter, about people just pretending to be studio teachers when they don't actually have the license for it impersonating licensed studio teachers in some case. So it's it's really important and fortunately something that's getting some media scrutiny as of late. But I remember when I was working in Hollywood, the studio teacher was a partner to us in the assistant directing department. Sometimes there might be some tension. Sometimes things will run long or you have certain issues, but to make sure that you're following those rules, that was a big help to sort of keep us on the straight and narrow. Yeah, and you know, for me, education is, I mean, I believe education is everything. Celebrity comes and goes, but at the end of the day, knowledge, that's forever. So there really is, in my mind, nothing more important than getting a good education on set and laying the groundwork for whatever is to come. So David, you talked about traveling for work as well. Now, when I worked on Big Fish, we filmed in Alabama, and I was made aware that while they do have child labor laws, none of them apply to film productions. Now, since we were a California production, we brought with us the California rules. But I'm curious in your travels, if you ever in a circumstance where the rules were different because of where you were filming? Well, you raise a really interesting point because federal labor law actually explicitly excludes child acting. It's a carve-out. So it's regulated state by state and country by country. But the only common set of standards really being what the union requires if it's a union production. So an interesting thing is Coogan accounts. 15% of the earnings are supposed to be set aside for the performer when they turn 18. But that's a California state law. So New York, New Mexico, Louisiana, Illinois, I think, have similar statutes in place. But so much production, for instance, you mentioned Alabama, is now happening in Georgia. And they don't have any law like that. You know, 15% is protected for the child actor from, you know, being stolen by a bad parent or whatnot in LA, but not if the production's in Atlanta, not if it's in Vancouver. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting and problematic area. David, you also talked about uh, stand-ins and stunt doubles. Is it true that sometimes they were also minors or were you often with uh, short adults to be able to fill those roles? And do you have any relationships with those folks on set? For stand-ins, it was more often than not adults of shorter stature, but with stunt performers, because there's a need for them to look more like the child actor, it often is a kid, actually. I I vividly remember this one kind of go-to child stunt performer who was the son of a mom and a dad who were stunt coordinators or stunt men and women themselves. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, no, so there definitely is a distinction there. 
and not because you're necessarily taking this child stunt performer and putting them in a dangerous situation, but even, you know, riding a bike down a difficult road or something that might risk a broken arm that could shut the entire production down. You need to bring in another child to be the stunt performer in that case. What I would imagine. Most definitely. And, and also, I mean, frankly, sometimes stunts can be dangerous. I insisted most of the time, actually, on doing my own stunts. I was crazy. I love outdoor activities. I love ATV and doing things I probably shouldn't have been doing as a child actor. But the child stunts people weren't always very happy with me because they were like, hey, I was brought here to do the fun stuff. (laughs) So in terms of the education you did receive, what does school on set look like? I don't think there's any one answer to that question. For one child actor, that it might consist of video games and craft service. And for another child actor, it might consist of really challenging themselves with the most complicated math problems out there. Uh, you can probably guess which category I fell into there. Yeah, you were a bit of an overachiever on the education front, if I'm recalling correctly. I, I think it'd be fair to say that. But, you know, the thing that's actually not appreciated about school on set is, you know, there are all these protections in place for minors to make sure they're getting three hours or whatever it is a day of schooling. But so many child actors actually get emancipated at a really young age or get their GED functionally and just are able to basically opt out of the number of hours that are technically required and work those additional hours on set instead. You know, once people hit a certain age, like it's actually not that common for the schooling on set to happen. So David, how do you approach the issue? Well, as it sounds like you know, I actually started college really young. I was all about education. I mentioned this earlier. It's the end-all be-all for me. At the end of the day, it's the one thing that can't be taken away from you. Wealth, celebrity, all that stuff can come, it can go. But at the end of the day, if you're educated, you have skills, you have that. No one's taken it from you. So that was always a huge priority for me, and I am... So glad that I never let um, any of the fascinating, exciting stuff I was doing in Hollywood interfere with getting a really strong basis for the next phases of life. And so talk to me then about your decision to leave acting. So I ended up going to law school. Apologies for being a stickler here, but is being a lawyer that much different than being an actor? (laughs) The only difference is there's only 12 members of the audience now. Fair enough. So you went to law school and um, was that the end of your acting career? Well, like I said, Skid, I, I really don't think being an actor and a lawyer are all that different. There's actually <laughs> a huge number of, no, and I'm being serious. There's actually a huge number of parallels between what child actors learn and what skills really prove valuable in private practice and government in law school. To be a little facetious here, but it is true. I mean, just think about the bar exam. You're memorizing a bunch of stuff on flashcards to regurgitate uh, onto a piece of paper. Only difference with acting is you're memorizing, uh, memorizing a bunch of stuff to regurgitate as lines on screen. You know, memorization actually is a hugely valuable skill in life. People take that for granted. Like you actually really have to master being able to memorize things and memorize things quickly as a child actor. And you can't mess it up because, I'll, I mean, you know all too well, Skid, a lot of money is on the line. As an actor, another big part of the job is understanding your character and learning everything about the era in which the movie takes place, the context in which it takes place, your character's backstory. You need to understand everything inside and out as an actor and in the same way as an attorney. That's your job with your client, to understand their context, their backstory, 
what their goals are, it's not that different. And it's a really relevant skill set that is actually kind of similar. I guess another thing I'll add is that acting is about storytelling, right? Everyone on set, above the line, below the line, their goal is to help that production tell a story and convince people of the authenticity of that plot line, those characters. And that's really what lawyers do as well. It's about telling a story. It's about convincing people of your argument. It's about trying to get across a point. So it's another very strong parallel. Any other ways you see your Hollywood experience tying in with what you do now? Well, there's a lot of ways, but I'm going to give you a very interesting answer. Are you familiar with this phenomenon of deepfakes, AI-generated videos that make people appear to say things they're not actually saying? Yes, I have heard of that. It's a growing concern. So for whatever reason, I've found myself a fascinating niche of really being an expert on this topic, among other things. But something that actually kind of drew me to be so interested in deepfakes is its implications on actors. I mean, think about it. In just a couple of years' time, we could live in a world where studios don't need to hire actors. They don't need to hire people below the line. The whole ecosystem can be replaced by AI-generated content. It's a lot cheaper. You can do stunts and special effects that you can never do with real people on a real set. So in a weird way, uh, me thinking about what the future of Hollywood may be actually led me to discovering a topic that I work a lot on professionally now. David, that would also suggest that maybe we both got out while the going was good. You know what? Both of us may have very unique experiences behind us. You know, we can talk about the good old days when there were real actors and real assistant directors instead of just lines of code. But I'd be remiss if I mentioned deepfakes and didn't also mention that there are remarkable possibilities there as well. They have the potential to democratize content production and, you know, unleash a whole new world of creative expression. So with the bad comes the good. Well, we both find ourselves in Washington now. What's your take on the Hollywood versus D.C. division? So, you know, every year around the time of the White House Correspondents' Dinner, I think, people make this joke about D.C. is Hollywood for ugly people. Now, I'm not commenting on that. <laughs> Sometimes jokes exist for a reason, right? There's some merit to it. I'll also add traffic in both cities, equally bad. You know, probably not too many people listening to this have sat on the Beltway, but I assure you, it rivals the 405. <laughs> that said, I, I will say there's a lot less security getting onto a studio lot than into the Capitol complex. So we've got that going for us. I don't know. What's what's your thoughts on that? You're, you're equally capable of answering this question, Skid. Yeah. You know, David, on that last point, I would say post 9-11, I think the security on the lots did get pretty strict as well. I remember uh, it really being a, a factor you had to consider in. Of course, that was some time ago, and uh, maybe even that's improved by now. But uh, yeah, I think they're more and more alike every day. Very true. Good points. LA's got better baseball. That's a low bar indeed. <laughs> well, David, this has been fun. On, on that note, I think we'll call it a wrap. It's great having you here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to catch up again. Glad we could finally get you on the show. Listeners, I always appreciate your feedback. You'll find my contact info at our website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. You'll also find past episodes and links to all of our social media, so check it out. Closing credits, thanks to Curtis Five for our music, John Juan for our logo, and to all of our listeners, I appreciate you. Please rate us wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. This is the last episode of season 14 and the final episode of 2022. I hope you enjoy the holidays wherever you are and you'll join us again in the new year. Thanks again from Below the Line.